The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Dr. Will Cole. As a leading functional medicine practitioner, I have had the unique position to see so many alchemize their pain and health problems to their purpose. Now I want the same for you. This podcast is the manifesto for a new breed of health seekers, where there is a fresh infusion of grace and lightness into wellness. This is the art of being well. Join me every Thursday for a new episode. Hey, it's Mariana, and welcome back to the Life with Mariana podcast. In this episode, I have Kirsten Jordan. So I'm so excited for this one because I wanted to know more about real estate. I've gone through the process of home buying myself, but I thought you might want to know everything you need to know when buying a home as a first-time homeowner, finding a mortgage, finding a real estate agent, and also if you want to invest in properties, what to look for in investment properties, and how you can use investment properties to create wealth for yourself. So if you guys want to hear from Kirsten, keep listening, and don't forget to subscribe to my podcast because I've got new episodes every Tuesday. The big question is the money part. So when do we need to start saving for a home? People really should be saving for a home the day that they start working. I really believe that the ratios of your paycheck, especially for people who maybe are 1099 and and so however you structure your gross income, it should be 30, 30, 10. For someone like me who's an entrepreneur, I always put 30% away for taxes. I put 30% into my personal regular expenses. I put 30% back into my business and 10% into investments that I plan on putting into investment properties for me at this point in time. I think that for people who maybe don't aren't entrepreneurs, there is probably a room to say, okay, that 40% that I have decided to allot for reinvesting into my business and then investing into investments for the future, you probably could say half of that should be going away to owning a home in the future and the other half should probably be going away to saving for a rainy day or investment in general. So it's about saving for the future. So maybe having less expensive now. So for myself, what I did was when I was renting, my rent was less than I could afford so that I could save so that that when the time eventually came, I was saving a big chunk of money. I was saving so I could have the home I wanted to be in later. Exactly. Exactly. So the best thing to do is have a plan. I I like the profit first concept of hiding money from yourself where you say, okay, I'm going to artificially live on less than I'm making so that I can put money away for the future. And clearly you have to look at those percentages and decide how long it's going to take you. And if you want to buy a home soon, then you need to put away more money and maybe put less into the savings savings and and plan on having, you know, a lot of your wealth in your first home. And then if you're buying your first home, is 20% down still the typical or is there anything for a first time homeowner that you could do? There are banks that will let you put down less. And if that works from a monthly output perspective for your personal finances, I think that's totally fine. You're building wealth, and especially at a time where inflation is is really a big topic and a thought on everyone's minds, it's still the best hedge against inflation to own a home, and, and it's a great way to build wealth. They always say like, oh, it's a good time to buy a home. It's not a good time to buy a home. How do you know if it's a good time to make this investment? Long term is the only way to think about real estate. And if you plan on purchasing a home, you should plan on for your first home. You should not plan on flipping it. You should definitely plan on holding it for five to 10 years if possible. If you're buying something that you believe is going, you're going to grow out of in the next six months, it's probably not the right home for you. At that point, you should plan on maybe holding that for the future as an investment property as you grow into your next step, or you should 
then at that point put away a little bit more and wait a little bit so you can get something that you can stay in a little bit longer. And if you are thinking about buying that first home and knowing it's going to be short term, is there something you should think of like, okay, I want to say that I'm making X percentage off of this or some sort of math that makes sense to not live there for a long time? If you are going to be able to own that that smaller home for much less than you'd be paying in rent, that's the first reason to consider purchasing a home like that. And then as far as being able to plan on renting that out in the future, if you're not able to recuperate your costs fast enough by having to sell quickly, that's probably probably the best way to look at it. So looking at hedging your hedging your bets. You know, in New York City, we have a large percentage of the homes are co-ops, which don't allow you to necessarily rent them out so easily after you've lived in them. And so that's something that people have to consider. And a lot of the rest of the country you can buy a single family home and do whatever you want with it. Let's say someone listening right now, they want to buy a home, whether it's in a year, five years, 10 years from now, what can they start doing now to get their finances in order so that they can qualify for the mortgage that they want? One of the first things to do is to learn about your own credit. You can get your own credit score checked all over the place. And that's something that you can do within your own, from your bank, from your bank account. That's one place to start. The other place to start is to understand your debt to income ratio. The ratio of what it would cost you to own a home versus your gross income is your debt to income ratio. And so most people try to stay under 30% for that ratio. So understanding what those housing expenses are going to look like for you is important. And that's the, really the first place to start. And then it is really saving. It's putting that money away so that you can have a healthy down payment so that your monthly expenses aren't going to be so high. And, and you can maybe throw your weight around a little bit in that offer process. Let's say your credit isn't where you want it to be, but your time it's time for you to buy a home. You've got your down payment saved. What can you do to look better on paper or improve the credit? There are actually credit specialists. I don't know what they're what that's called, but there are people who specialize in cleaning up credit because this is something that happens all the time. You sign up for some silly credit card, you didn't realize that it was getting sent to the home next door to you because there was one number that was off because the woman at Saks put the wrong number into the system. And so you haven't been paying this $300 bill for the last six months and now your credit's ruined. So there are people out there who can actually help you fix that. So that would be the first place I would start. And then if you do have bad credit and it's a real, it's becoming a real problem for your process, then that's, some, that's a situation to start calling other mortgage brokerages to try to figure out if there's anything they can do to help. You know, we're self-employed. We have various types of businesses and income. And even though you have all the finances in order on paper, it might not look like you are trustworthy because we have fluctuations in our income. I've seen a lot of my friends, especially in New York, they're trying to apply for places. And then everyone's like, well, you have to have all these X sort of things because you're freelance and we don't know that your income is guaranteed. Mm -hmm. What can we do to prove ourselves as freelance or self-employed people that we can apply for mortgages and be this is a really tough one, and I'm in the same boat. I'm I'm self-employed. Um, I'm an entrepreneur, and there are banks. I specifically work with Guard Hill Financial on these kinds of situations because what they will do is they have a program that will just look at your bank account and the additions to your bank account in the last 24 months, and they can use that as basically proof of income. Granted, maybe the rate is going to be a little bit higher. But at least you have that opportunity to build wealth instead of just being cut out of the whole home ownership process straight away. 
Holiday parties are just around the corner. And whenever I go to a party, I always have to come with a gift in hand. I always like to bring something. I usually like to bring a drink or something with me. And selfishly, I want to bring something with me that I actually want to drink and enjoy just in case there's something there that I don't want. And something I think you guys might want to bring with you this holiday season is Spritz Society. Spritz Society takes natural, recognizable ingredients and packs them into a convenient sparkling canned cocktail so that you can take it with you anywhere. They are low-calorie, low-sugar drinks with 6% ABV, and they are guaranteed delicious. Spritz Society was named the best canned cocktail by USA Today. It comes in five iconic flavors to choose from, grapefruit, blood orange, peach, pineapple, and lemon, so you really can't go wrong. My favorite flavors are peach and pineapple because I love anything sweet and fruity. And when I'm going to any holiday parties or Friendsgivings, I don't want to have to like mix a drink because it's too complicated and takes too much time. So Spritz Society is an award-winning and easy-to-go drink, so you don't have to fuss over complicated cocktail recipes. You can just pour a Spritz Society over ice for an amazing sparkling cocktail that would impress anyone. I have a few parties coming up, which I'm so excited about to get together with friends for Friendsgiving. So I'm definitely going to be taking these with me as my hostess gift. So if you guys are thinking about what to take with you this holiday season, it's time to stock up. And thanks to our friends at Spritz Society, you can try their iconic sparkling cocktails for 10% off by using code Mariana on SpritzSociety.com. That's code Mariana for 10% off on SpritzSociety.com. S-P-R-I-T-Z Society.com. I went through the process twice. So I've bought two places now. And both times I was like, I could qualify. It was all great. I could do the down payment and everything. And then it's like, well, but can you really prove it? Because you've been self-employed for so many years. And I'm like, I have all these businesses. I do all these things. And it was really frustrating through the process to feel like I feel like I'm doing well for myself, but they're not really trusting that I can afford my mortgage. Well, and it's ironic because it's not, it's very un-American to say you're an entrepreneur. You've made it on your own. You've made it you've built wealth, you have real income, you're employing other people, and we're not gonna let you borrow to buy a home. Makes no sense. So my advice in that situation is, of course, having the highest down payment possible. And then if you can get through that purchase process of that first home, that's usually the worst hurdle. Because then if you have that home and maybe you can keep it, you can always use that as proof that you've paid your mortgage for the last several years, you can refinance it. There's a lot more you can do once you actually own the collateral you're ready to buy a home, how do you find a realtor? And how do you know that somebody is the right fit for you? Is this like dating? It is kind of like dating, actually. Uh, The most important part about working with a real estate agent is not only that they're really good at what they do and that they have a real track record of selling in your area that that you'd like to buy, but it's also that you don't mind talking to them all the time because it's truly a long process, no matter how short you're able to get it done. And what I always tell people, especially people who are on the listing side, is you have to pick somebody that you're comfortable talking to a lot because this is going to be this is going to be a, a real relationship. I'm going to be bringing people through your home to to show it to them. And we're going to be talking about feedback. We're going to have difficult conversations. And on the buy side, you it's like surgery. You don't want to have somebody do knee surgery on you that only does one surgery a month. You want somebody who does wakes up in the morning and does two or three surgeries a day. That's what you want. And that's the same thing with real estate because you it, you don't want them to be phased by any piece of this. Somebody's searching for an agent, where can they go about finding one? How do they start meeting people? You grant it, let's just say this. You probably all know at least one real estate agent. That's just the way it works, especially if you're in Florida or you're out here in in, in California. There's probably more real estate agents than 
than we need, right? So the first place to start is, of course, if you know of somebody who has done transactions that you've seen them do successful transactions in your area, in the micro market that you want to make the purchase or sell, specifically if we're talking about purchasing. So I would start there. I would look and see who recently either did sales or represented a buyer that was in the neighborhood and was able to target the kind of property that you'd like to buy. And that's probably the first the first place to start. And you can find out about that online most of the time. And then do people usually work with one agent? Are you working with multiple to find, like let's say someone is really good in this area, but you're also looking in various parts of like, let's say Los Angeles. So you wanna mm-hmm. look in the Valley, but you wanna look in Santa Monica. Do you work with one person? Do you work with multiple people? I would say the best thing to do is to pick one relationship unless you really are looking in areas that you believe that this agent is not going to be able to offer value for you. So if there's a moment where you really feel like they're out of their element, that's when you say, hey, I feel like you're out of your element here. Do you think it's better if I work with somebody that's going to be hyper localized? Other than that, I try to work with a buyer from start to finish. We, you know, I specialize, for example, in Manhattan. We do Manhattan and, and and then of course somebody else on my team maybe will take them to Long Island City in Brooklyn and then we'll reconvene. Okay. But I would say most of the time it is best to try to work with one because it, it becomes a two-way street. It's a relationship. They're investing a ton of time in working with you. And if they are really good at what they do, you also want somebody that remembers what you've seen. Hey, remember you didn't like purple walls because that time we saw purple walls you didn't like. You don't like black toilets. I don't know. Anything. You don't like, I don't know. <laughs> but you want somebody to remember that because they've been with the pro- with you throughout the whole process. Okay, so let's say you find someone, you, f- you find the person you want to date, you're together now, what can you negotiate and what kind of fees does an agent take that's typical in the process? So on the buy side, if we're looking at home ownership from the buy perspective, in most markets, the seller, most, most markets in the US, the seller actually pays both sides of the commission. It's co-broked is what it's called. So essentially by looking with a buyer's agent, you are not paying any extra commission. This is essentially a service that's paid for by the seller. The buy side agent is traditionally compensated, depending on the market, at between one and 3% um, of the purchase price. As you go into markets where there's going to be maybe other incentives, they can be compensated with as much as four or 5% of the purchase price because of the fact that maybe it's a developer and they're trying to incentivize these agents to bring their buyers. And frankly, you know, in some of those cases, those those buyers agents really deserve their deserve that larger commission because they've brought this really well vetted buyer to a developer and 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 a lot of the time what happens is also the developers maybe offer these higher commissions expecting that the agent will maybe throw in an extra point during the negotiations. And then is it typical to negotiate this or do you think just like the percentage is set at what it is? Well, what usually happens with the percentage of brokers commissions is that if it ends up getting negotiated, it gets negotiated during a negotiation for the purchase price. And so there, it happens all the time that agents will maybe throw in a half a point or they'll throw in a couple thousand dollars because the table was chipped or the, you know, something wasn't working at the closing table. On the sell side, that's where there's more room for negotiation. However, the there's downsides to negotiating the commission from the seller perspective because of the fact that buy side agents look at the commissions when they bring their buyers. So if you negotiate the commission too much, you could just be too short-sighted on being able to attract the largest pool of purchasers. Have you ever traveled somewhere and once you got there, you took a shower, you washed your hair, and you notice your skin and your hair just looks and feels so much more different. And you're like, what's going on here? Whether it was good or it was bad, 
So much of that has to do with like the water quality and the way that we're washing our hair and we're washing our face. And that's a great thing to think about when we are at home too, and that there are ways to improve our shower so that our hair looks and feels its best. So Jolie is a beauty wellness company and they're focused on purifying the quality of our water for better skin and hair. We all know to filter the water we drink, but why not the water that we shower in? Many of our skin and hair issues actually start with our water, dry skin, acne, damaged hair, eczema, change in hair color, rashes, and even hair loss. The water we shower in is fundamental to the quality of our hair and skin, so that's why Jolie is tackling the root cause with the Jolie Filtered Showerhead. I notice how water really changes how my skin and my hair feels. So that's why I want to have the best experience that I can. I just got this and I'm so excited to install and use because the installation process looks so easy. And by filtering your shower water, you're getting to the root of the problem and eliminating the contaminants, preventing you from your best skin and hair. And Jolie is built to remove chlorine and heavy metals, which are the main culprits of causing damage to our hair and skin. I am so excited to start using this and see the results that it's going to show in my skin and my hair so that all of my products can work even better. So get filtered shower water at jolieskinco.com or follow them at jolieskinco on Instagram to learn more. Again, that's jolieskinco.com. How do we start going about this process? Like what criteria do you give an agent? What are you looking for? And then I also want to know like what to be actually realistic about. Like is there things where you're like, okay, I really want a big kitchen, so I'm not going to give this up no matter what? Or do you try to push your clients to be a little bit more flexible? Everybody should come to the process with a wish list. There is, of course, a really long wish list for so many buyers. And then you need to look at what's negotiable and what's your top two to three items that you really, really want. And and then you have to start seeing what the market can offer. As you know, as a homeowner, once you start getting out there and you start seeing what's available, a lot of things that were on your wish list become things that you have to become negotiable about. And then you have to decide what your top, even maybe it's just top one thing or top two things are that are where you will not budge. And then the rest you have to start getting more flexible, unless you're living in an area where there's a tremendous amount of affordability. But in areas like we are, the affordability factor is way, way lower, right? So we have a smaller pool of homes to look at at any price point. And so you have to, you just have to get flexible. And then what about people who are like, okay, I want to buy a house right now. Do you suggest that they really just wait until they find the house that they really love versus just needing to do it for the sake of time? Because I went through this process in the pandemic. I was looking at this when everyone was trying to buy places and the inventory was so low and I felt like I was almost settling to get a place. And then Mm -hmm. I just, I took a breath and I was like, you know what, I'm going to wait until I actually find something that I really love. And that's what I did. But I know a lot of people feel the rush of like, I have to do it right now, this artificial timeline. If mortgage rates are at a historic low, I don't think there's anything wrong with finding urgency in the process. Because the truth is, is keeping your carrying costs low is a huge part of building wealth. You can't spend infinitely and still keep your money. It's about what you take home, right? And and so I can understand that level of urgency during that time. I also think that the difference between deciding you're going to buy within a month and maybe waiting three months usually doesn't impact the rates as much, right? So, or impact the market even as much. Within three months, things things don't change as much. So I would say if you can do what you're talking about, which is take your urgency down a notch, be thoughtful and make the right purchase, this is for most people and should be a long-term investment. And so, yes, it is important to take a breath, evaluate what you really want, Don't feel like you're completely settling, but understand that there's always going to be a little element that you're going to have to settle because at every price point, 
every buyer feels like they're settling. <laughs> yes. And then how can we use real estate and buying properties for wealth for ourselves? Like what are some different ways that we can make this an investment so that in time we can make money? The best way in my humble opinion is to improve the asset. So what you probably should do is if you can find a place that's in a location that you believe in. So for some, and for some people that means going to a location that still needs or still is going to experience gentrification and hasn't or hasn't experienced that yet, that's totally fine. But you need to decide then how much you're gonna improve that asset and how long you're gonna wait for that appreciation. If you can buy in a location where you know that within five to seven years, there's gonna be a change in the neighborhood or things are gonna get better, then it's gonna really, really help to to improve that asset. So for some people that means, you know, kitchens and bathrooms are the first place where you add value right away. And if you can live through a renovation, all the better because then you don't have to pay for another place to live during that time. So that's one place. Otherwise, of course, landscaping's huge. Whether you have a terrace and you live in an apartment building or whether you have a backyard, that's also another big piece of it. Curb appeal is also super important. So if you have any control over the curb appeal of your home, which is whether that's improving the facade, painting, whatever that looks like, that's another big piece. If you're living in an apartment building, that could be getting on the board and making sure that they fix the lobby all kinds of ways that you can improve the asset. And then the other piece of that is just design, paint, plants. Okay, and what are some things we should not invest in? Because I know there's some things where people are like, I really wanna change this about my place, but it's really not adding any value. Yeah, so for some people it might be, I don't know, adding an extra bathroom that's unnecessary. Those can be expensive, that can be expensive and not add value. For some people it's adding on and that adding on is not impactful enough because the home is already that perfect size and maybe it's gonna just be too big for the lot. For some people, it's certain expensive finishes. So if they're going all out on finishes that are just over the top, fixtures that are over the top, those can definitely be an area where you'll lose money or getting too specific, getting too unique in your design choices. That's another place where you can spend money and it's, really you're really not going to get it back anytime you start to go into the category where people say oh wow that was a really unique design choice i'm not sure that's something that i'm interested in that's when you could start putting money into your home that you're not going to get out if you are working on upgrading your home and you know that the intention is to sell in some amount of years don't do anything that's too trendy just do something a little more safe so that you know more people will probably like it listen i think in for example in Los Angeles, there's a certain level of trend that probably would help sell your home. It's it's trend in the direction of being just too specific, that's a problem. So the idea would be picking maybe a designer that's universally appealing. But for example, right now there's a huge trend in Manhattan of like a dark, dark blue island with a marble countertop, right? With like brass fixtures. I just sold a home for a record price per square foot that was like that. And it, wasn't a, it was a specific design choice, but it went with an overall theme that's very desirable in this particular moment. Yes. So if you're going to make those kinds of design choices, that's when you are either in it to resell quickly, or you're gonna hope that by the time you sell, that's still gonna be in. Yeah, I know exactly the kitchen that you're thinking of too, because it's like a, a kitchen that I love on Pinterest. And if I were to buy a place, I would probably remodel to do it. So it's saving me the effort of having to do that myself. Exactly. I love exactly. that. It's November, which means we are getting ready for the holidays. So maybe you've made a list, but you haven't checked it twice. Or maybe you haven't made a list at all like me, and you definitely get started on this. So get ahead of the holiday shopping rush with Macy's Gift Finder. 
Whether it's for mom, grandpa, or your BFF, the Macy's Gift Finder makes it so easy to get them their dream gift at any budget, from Lux to $15 or under. Check out these gift ideas from Macy's.com slash gift finder. Browse curated shops and gift lists for the jet setters, the one who has everything, the pet parent, plus so many more. If you or your special someone is brand loyal to the end, Macy's has designers for days like Coach, Ugg, and Free People, and the list goes on. And if you're proudly the I can't get any of my shopping done until the night before people, treat yourself because maybe you need a new set of fluffy house slippers or want to get the holiday vibe ready with ornaments, lights, and wreaths. And don't forget your R&R essentials and your favorite skincare products. For me, someone who has everything, I know everyone's always trying to think of gifts to get me. So these are a couple of my favorite things from their curated list. There's, of course, matching pajamas, which I could always use more pajamas. There are Ugg slippers on here in stock, which I love Uggs. I can never have enough. I feel like every holiday season, I'm always getting a new pair for myself. They also have new face, which I love this. And they've also got beauty advent calendars. And I love all things Dior beauty. And they have a five-piece Rouge Dior set. Again, check out all the gifts to feel December ready at Macy's.com slash gift finder. Okay, so let's say you find a place that you love. You want to put an offer in. What happens next? Before you make an offer, most likely, if you're not really, really well-versed in exactly every trade or every sale that's happened in the neighborhood or nearby, you're going to want your real estate agent to come up with a list of comparable properties so that they can give you advice around pricing where you should put your offer in, what your terms should be, what that should look like. And then the other part of evaluating the comparable properties and deciding where you should come in with your opening bid is also understanding the terms that the sellers are looking for. So in some cases, sellers care about the price to a certain point. Maybe they just really want somebody who's going to close really quickly because they want to be able to have a holdover where they get to stay for a couple of months so that they can then purchase the other home that they're looking at, right? So there's that's that's one piece that could be important. So it's not just about price, it's also about terms. And that's where having a real estate agent that's going to help you with that negotiation process is really, really important. Because at one point during this most recent market, when things were so hot and so crazy, there's a real estate agent who I really admire that would say, why don't you let your seller dictate the offer that they're going to get? Have them write the offer and I'll see if my buyer can match that. And and we're not in that market anymore, but on some level, understanding the terms that are going to be attractive to a seller is another way you can either get maybe a little bit of a better discount on the asking price, or you can win out when there's more than one person interested in the property. And then what are some of these like mandatory questions that you think people should know before purchasing? Because I know a lot of times for first time buyers, they don't even know to ask what these terms are, like right. what are closing terms? Like what if somebody wants no inspections? Like what are these like kind of things that we should right. be aware of? Well, in, in, in the single family housing market, there is the inspection. We don't always have inspections in the apartment market, but we do that sometimes as well. And so an inspection is basically somebody coming in who's an expert who can take a look at the structural elements of the home. They can look at the plumbing. They can look at the zoning. They can look at the distance of the toilet to the wall and tell you if that's up to code. Those are things that are really important. And based on what that inspector finds, you'll either decide whether you want to move forward to purchase the home or not. And they might give you a list of things that you want to ask to to have repaired or that you're going to ask for a credit to to repair yourself. So that's one piece. So that, And that's a really important question to understand is, is this a market where I can be doing an inspection? Is this, a, is this an opportunity where I have time to do an inspection? And is this 
is this a kind of environment where I can do an inspection, I can get somebody to cave on a couple of terms because of the inspection. So that's one piece. Then the other piece is closing costs. Every single market has intricacies when it comes to closing costs. Most of those have to do with taxes. They're either closing costs that are taxes to your city, taxes to your state, transfer taxes, taxes. We have a mansion tax in New York that's progressive depending on the price point of the property. I heard you guys are getting some taxes here that have to do with wealth. There's all kinds of taxes that have to do with closing on properties. So that's another piece to understand because the worst thing you can do is sign a contract and realize as you get closer to the closing that you have to come up with an extra $50,000 because you didn't know. And nobody likes surprises like that. So those are surprises you should be asking about. And then and then the rest of it is kind of, you know, market specific as far as questions are concerned. So, you know, if you're in a market where you are in a flood zone or you could be potentially in a if there's whatever natural disaster is in your market, you should be finding out if this home has any sort of susceptible to that. Is there any red flags we should look for as a buyer? Like let's say we're walking through a home, everything seems amazing. Is there something where you're like, I always like to check out this one thing? Uh, well, I think for some of us, water pressure is a big thing. If you go to try the sink and the and the shower, and those are really, really like a trickle, that's always that's always something. There's other other areas do end up coming up with inspections as well, is my opinion. And then the rest of it comes to really market knowledge, which is understanding whether someone cheaped out on a renovation or not, which is something usually a, a good real estate agent can tell you whether, you know, whether they cheaped out or whether they did something where they were really cutting corners. Um, those are, or, or for example, you know, if you're looking at something that's going to need a renovation and you know, it's going to need a renovation, kind of understanding the level of the renovation. When was the last time they updated the electrical? That's a one piece that if, if they updated the electrical more than three, 25, 20 years ago, that's something that could be a different level of renovation than if somebody renovated recently and they updated the electrical 10 to 15 years ago, and all you have to do is renovate the kitchen and the bathroom. It's just understanding those are the kinds of red flags I would say are the most important to ask about. Okay. And if you want to buy a place as an investment property, are there certain types of properties that you think are better investments than others? The most important thing to remember about investment properties, well, there's two pieces, but the most important is your take home is the most important thing. When you evaluate investment properties, understanding the expenses related to that investment property are where you're going to understand how much money you can make off of it. So it doesn't mean that your yield, you always want the highest yield because for example, there are some investment properties that have very high yields and that's because there is high tenant turnover or there's something else that has to do with the population or kind of that lives in the property or that is going to be possibly living there. And if that's if if the if the cap rate which is essentially the return on the investment is high, you always want to understand why, right? And so I would say with investment properties you need to know whether what kind of return you're going to get based on what those expenses are. So that's one of the number one pieces to understand, okay, what rent could I possibly get here? What are the expenses going to be? So what is my net number going to be of what, how much money I'm going to make? And then if that net number is high relative to the current market, is there something that I need to know about this property that is going to make it a headache for me? And then the other piece you need to know if you want to start buying up properties is who you're going to use to help you manage it. Because the property manager, the people that I know that are the most successful at buying and leveraging and continuing to buy investment properties are those who who have who've decided their market because of the property manager that they have. And if you have a good property manager, you can just collect checks. 
And if you don't, you will have to be very, very involved, which is its own job. And how do you find a property manager? Well, it's almost it's almost like you want to find the property manager before you find the property. Yeah. You, you want to look at the you want to look at the net market. For example, let's say you decided you want to invest in Chattanooga, in Tennessee, because of the fact that Tennessee is um, you know an area where there's a high affordability ratio. So, or there's a high cap rate. We'll say not affordability ratio, but a high cap rate. So, the first thing I would do is as you're looking at properties. Try to find that property manager. So, and usually you can find there's property management firms all over. And sometimes real estate brokerages have property management arms associated with them. So, so that would be the best way to start. Would be as as you start to find that real estate agent that's a specialist down there. You also look. So you Google Chattanooga property management. Find one that has a nice name. Looks like they do a lot of business. Look at their reviews. Look on Yelp. Whatever it is, Google Google my business. See if they have good reviews. See if you can talk to somebody who works with them. See if somehow you can, from a referral, I mean, this is where referrals come in big. Mm -hmm. If you have a friend who owns property in an area and they have a good property manager, you're way better off seeing if you can get in on that than start from scratch. And would you recommend somebody buying an investment property where they live or they should really look into like another state or somewhere else? Like, let's say I live in Los Angeles. Should I buy something in Florida or is it better for me to buy something in L.A.? I think that property management question is the, is, okay. the, is where the answer is. So if you have a if you have a strong property manager, I, I met someone the other day who's a really great property management company in in uh, outside in Pennsylvania, in rural Pennsylvania. I'm going to start looking at properties there because I know she's going to take care of them, and her property management firm can take care of them, and that they're going to get solid yields because I'm not going to have to deal with it. So, but in that piece, you'd really want to make sure that you you had a good property manager locally. Okay, if you could have a dream property as an investment in any city, where, where would you buy? The dream for me, as far as if 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 yield didn't matter, I would buy I would buy in a in a in a top you know Robert A M Stern Naftali project on the Upper East Side of Manhattan because of the fact that I know that that is going to hold value, or in the West Village of Manhattan because I understand that market and, and I know that it would hold value. What is your dream house for yourself? Oh gosh, um, I would say my dream house for myself. My husband's from Milan, and my dream home would be owning a one of those super old but restored apartments that had that's in the middle of Milan with a view of the Duomo that has like you know restored frescoes, but like a really cool oh, modern kitchen. Amazing! That sounds <laughs> great. Uh, well, where can everyone follow you and find you? You can follow me at Kirsten.Jordan. That's Instagram and TikTok are both the same. And then KirstenJordan.com is my website. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. And be sure to subscribe to my podcast and rate and review because it would mean so much to me. And follow me on Instagram at Mariana underscore Hewitt to see what episodes are coming up next. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.